0: Good Sunday morning Iowa. And it's wrap up the state fair and on into fall time. And boy, you know, the state fair is pretty darn impressive. Just you know, the the logistics of everything that happens with that fair is is pretty impressive. And then of course, you know, it's nice cuz it's got your your agricultural stuff. I love the big pumpkins wish I could have one of those around Halloween. I just, I think the butter cow is such a kitschy little Iowa thing. And the, cause I mean, a lot of state fairs will have the cow toss, the cow patty toss and the, and the chicken calling and the hog calling. But I, I don't think anybody else has a butter cow. Pretty sure that they don't. Maybe they do in Wisconsin. If they don't, they're probably jealous that they didn't think of it first. But, uh, but yeah, so my oldest daughter worked at a food booth this year. It was her first job and there were there were several family trips to the fair and uh, it's just kind of a cool thing and I don't know if you got if you haven't uh, been to the fair in a few years it's it's still fun you know it's it's I'm sure a lot bigger than it was 30 40 years ago uh, but what's not really but you know it's funny because my daughter my youngest daughter and I were talking the other day about you know she wants to live near the beach And, but then she said, but, but, you know, I love fall (laughs) and usually don't get, I mean, you do in some places. I mean, certainly you would get a fall some places on the East coast that are near the beach, but I think she wants to live somewhere warm near the beach. But then, but then she starts thinking she loves, you know, there's nothing like a crisp, bright fall day and you go out to the apple orchard and, you know, you you go to the pumpkin patch and you get your pumpkins and you get some apples and you come home and you watch a football game and eat some chili. I just love a day like that. And uh, so it's really, I love spring. I love fall. I like summer a lot. And I tolerate winter. And so I think there's probably a lot of people like that. And then. A lot of a lot of the farmers in my practice don't tolerate winter at all. They just head down to Arizona or Texas. Seems to be Arizona and Texas are the big ones. And I mentioned before that down where my dad used to live in Florida before he passed, it was it was uh, Canadian farmers because they just drive straight down. And I get it. I my wife and I, if we we likely will. Keep a house in Des Moines because we we think Des Moines is a lovely city. We've lived all over. I mean, between us, we've lived in I don't know how many cities. I I personally have lived in Tulsa. I lived right outside of Chicago until I was 12. But I didn't see Chicago much. We just kind of stayed in our little town. So I lived in a small town there. Lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then Stillwater for college, which is basically Ames. Washington, D.C. from medical school, Honolulu for my internship, New York City for my residency, Sydney, Australia, and Perth, Australia, then Kauai, which was small town, but very, you know, very rural, but very Hawaiian, and then uh, Champaign-Urbana for a couple of years, and then Des Moines for the last uh, eight years, except for a couple of years out here in Carroll, but uh, we like Des Moines, so we probably likely would keep keep a place in Des Moines and then have maybe a condo somewhere, South Carolina or somewhere nice for the winter. Anyway, speaking of Hawaii, uh, I hope you all have prayed for the people in Maui. That's just a catastrophe. It breaks my heart. Um, I lived on the island of Kauai, which is... I have only been to Maui three or so times, but you know, you... I know what it would have been like on Kauai if the main town was just basically hit by a flamethrower. and it's a very, very tight community and now they're dealing with all this tragedy and on top of that, I guess there's a bunch of investors and real estate developers calling these people, you know, trying to buy their houses out from under them or their property their their land, and you know they're probably leveraging the fact that most of these people or a, a certainly a lot of the people who lost their houses would have bought them 30 40 years ago or more and may not have enough insurance to rebuild and then and then the governor said something about trying to get the state to take up that land and I don't know it's just tragic the whole thing is just tragic and uh but it's yeah i mean it's it's one of those things where in, in, in Hawaii In the 1980s So Hawaii became a state in 1950 It was basically taken over by an illegal Illegal coup by some American businessmen Because Hawaii was a, was a kingdom it had printed its own money it had, I've actually got a silver coin from the kingdom of Hawaii You know was doing okay, and uh, some American businessmen said, uh, "We want this," and got the military to back them because it, you know the military saw the strategic opportunity there. And certainly, Russia and Japan had already—Russia had been there and built some forts, and Japan had been there. And it wasn't that Hawaii was sitting there and gonna be fine, but you know what America could have done. Is offered protection and an, uh, and an alliance, and it could have been like uh, places like Guam or Puerto Rico, but they decided just to steal the whole state. And so these businessmen took uh, Queen Liliuokalani and threw her in the prison of her own palace. And so there's still still a lot of animosity about that in the islands. But anyway, from all the way back, then they were starting sugar plantations. And the workers would come over from a bunch of different places. So there were big waves of workers. So there were Portuguese workers who came over, and that's interesting. They brought their flamenco or Portuguese version of flamenco guitars that were kind of small, and that evolved into the ukulele. There were a few Spanish, but the big populations were Portuguese, Japanese, and Filipino. And and then the, the next would, I guess, be Chinese. So there were all these little pockets of of uh, different cultures all basically coming over to work on the plantations and so it was really it was a real vibrant culturally vibrant place still is you know the buddhist temples will have these bond dances in the fall right about now they would be starting on Kauai, and uh they're really beautiful all, all the older ladies dress in kimonos and they have the big taiko drums these big giant japanese drums and they dance in a circle around this big tower that they erect so there's there's all these different cultures but you could always work at the plantation and maybe the husband works the plantation and the wife works at a hotel or something and they can afford to buy a little plantation house not necessarily on the plantation but sort of where so the plantations used to provide housing so they would in exchange for working there you would get some housing and then they pretty much stopped that. There's a couple of little tiny pockets of it still going on on Kauai. And then there's one little place called Pakala. Uh, but even those are, it's, it's different. Not all the people there work for the plantation. But, so they had all these plantation houses built. So when you were either buying an old plantation house or building a new house in the 80s, you could afford to do, it was a pinch, but you could afford to do it so there was a lot of more local homeownership. Whereas in the eighties and nineties, it got to the point where the average house price got into the two hundred, three $300,000 range and that was out of range. And now uh, I think the average house price on Kauai is, uh, is a million now. And, which is crazy. I mean, that's even, even since I left 10 years ago, that's almost doubled. <laughs> so it's just exponential and it's crazy. And, I mean, there's a lot of factors. I mean, I think one is a lot of people have become wealthy over the last 10, 20 years, even though that's a tiny little group. It's still a big number overall. So, you know, if, if 1% of 350 million people become really wealthy, then you have 3.5 million wealthy people and then just the uh, the ease of getting over there you know there's more flights and more people go and the more people go the more people dream of buying a house over there so then they buy a house over there and then a lot of people will buy a house over there to do a vacation rental and of course then that takes that house out of the housing market so you know when we left we we thought about doing a vacation rental but we thought you know We don't want to take that house, our house out of the vacation, out of the market. And it was affordable enough that we sold it to, uh, well, we sold it to the pediatrician who was working at the hospital that I left. So we felt like we kind of kept it in the family and he's still living there, but some people will come over and they'll say, Oh, I'd love to have a vacation rental. So they'll buy a, a house. They'll come visit it for two weeks a year and then they'll rent it out the rest of the time. And then they will then sell it for a profit. Well, you see where that goes. And I, I mean, as much as I, I'm, I'm someone who believes in regulated capitalism and, you know, there's always the tension between how much regulation is okay and how much isn't. I don't like the fact that most regulation tends to knock the little guy out and uh, let the large players get richer. And I think that that's obvious if you're a farmer, you know that that's the game. There's, they're doing everything they can to small farmers to make sure that they're especially for small farmers that use any, any kind of out-of-the-box agriculture techniques like regenerative farming or anything like that. Boy, they try to knock those people out with as much regulation as they can so that the entire farming community can be run by corporations in a couple generations. And hopefully that doesn't happen, but that's kind of the trajectory. But anyway, I feel like they could regulate that the county and the state have... I think they would have enough power constitutionally to say you can't, you know, just zone the whole island outside of the resort areas, zone it all residential, and then you can't vacation rental it. And you know, and I mean, I think that I understand the argument. Well, you know, free market capitalism, but you know, free market capitalism uh, needs to be regulated. Otherwise, you end up like what you know. That's what we had in the nineteen. 19- or in the 1860s and 70s and 80s when they were, you know, having kids work 12-hour days in factories. I mean, that's unregulated, right? So, you got to have some regulation, but anyway. So, it's it's tough. It used to be that that a, a local family that was generationally there on that island and, you know, could buy a house and, you know, and then, you know, pass it on to their kids or whatever, and now there's there's no hope for any of those families that haven't already got housing in their family to get more housing. And so and it causes a lot of tension as you can imagine. And, um, you know, maybe Maui can pull a rabbit out of their hat and do something, you know, again, I don't just knowing what I know about how things work. I, it's a super, super complex situation, but, I think certainly the people that lost houses in Maui, maybe part of the thing is if they were vacation rentals, they just get a check from the insurance company and then they don't they don't get to come back and build another vacation rental and take that house out of the housing market. I don't know. It's an ultimate tragedy. I mean, there's they say they're... Last I read, there were 1,300 people unaccounted for, but they had no idea how many of those were just cell phones are out or whatever. And also, there was... You know, the sirens didn't work, but from what I've heard, and I haven't seen the video of the fire coming, but if it was coming at 80 miles an hour, uh, I don't know. Because the siren, you don't immediately know if, well, is that a tsunami or what is it? Um, so, you know, I don't know that the sirens, I, they just weren't prepared because it hadn't happened before. Because, you know, it just it's, and I read one article that said that that all the the building and the farming that had gone on in that part of Maui had turned it from a wetland into a drier microclimate, and that makes sense. I mean, you know, that's the case a lot of places, you know. And then if you have an an 80-mile-an-hour wind because you've got a hurricane that's, you know, way offshore, well, it doesn't doesn't take much. But anyway, pray for the people of Maui, and I hope that they, uh, I'm hoping that somehow they can get you know, make it. you I mean, you can't replace all those people, but if you can make it better for the families and the people that are still there, that would be something. But I, I, I don't know. I, I don't pay attention to the news a lot. I don't know how much of it's on the news, but this is. I don't remember a bigger tragedy in a, a natural disaster. I don't remember a bigger natural disaster in my lifetime in America. I'd have to you know I've been thinking about it and I, I'd have to really look. I guess I could just Google it. but you know there are over a hundred people now. that's a that's a big catastrophe. So I hope that uh, I hope that they can uh, you know find some peace as they get through this what must be just awful. So it's funny that uh, my producer, who uh, runs the show, He commented that today I was a little early in my clinic and it's, I said, well, you know, it's interesting how that works because some days, you know, have a little bit of a light day and get out a little early. Some days, especially this is potential to happen on a Monday. So I might have 30 patients scheduled on a Monday and Sunday night, or Saturday, someone comes in that needs surgery that's what we call urgent. So like a hip fracture, for instance. So hip fractures usually want to get done within 48 hours if you can. Uh, it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's it's a general guideline. So we try to do that as much as we can. So if a hip fracture comes in on Saturday, we'll typically do it on Monday. Well, so that means Monday morning when the nurses for my clinic get there a little before 8. They're getting a phone call from the OR saying Dr. Godding has a surgery and the only available time we have to do it is at lunch. And so so they'll cancel my clinic in the afternoon and sometimes they'll put so they'll say, Okay, he's gonna do surgery at eleven. We'll see patients from three to four thirty. And then what can happen and does happen occasionally. And so we've tried to not do lunchtime cases anymore, tried to just, you know, get them on at the end of the day. But the problem is it becomes a real issue if you go past 3.30 because of staffing issues at the hospital. And I'll get into staffing issues later. So I sometimes will find myself I'm supposed to start a, a a case at eleven. I'm supposed to be done by two and start p- seeing patients at two thirty, and then some other surgeon is running long, and that's just how things happen. And so I don't get to start till twelve, and so I'm not done till two forty five or three, and so then I'm not getting down to my clinic until three thirty, and these patients have already had their appointment moved and then I come down there and I have six patients in the room all of whom have been waiting between 15 and 45 minutes and sometimes an hour so then I go to the patients that have been waiting the longest and I try to get in there and try to not act like I'm in a hurry but I really am in a hurry so that's just kind of how medical practice operates sometimes especially you know I'm the only surgeon here so if you're in Des Moines and you're at one of the big practices in Des Moines like DEMOS They'll have a surgeon on call for the weekend, but he's only going to do cases that have to be done that day. So if the bone is sticking out of the skin or something like that, it's just got to be done that day. Otherwise, he's going to hand off to the trauma surgeon. So the trauma surgeon is then going to take, like if a couple hip fractures come in to uh, Mercy or one of the Mercy hospitals in Des Moines, Des Moines. And so the orthopedic surgeon that's covering says, okay, well, we'll just, you know, they don't have to be done today, so we'll let the trauma guy do them on Monday. So then they they help get them all teed up for surgery. Monday, the trauma guy goes and does those surgeries. He already has a room. He's already, that's all he does. So then the surgeon that was covering over the weekend goes to his office and it's like nothing happened. And then if he is a little bit delayed for whatever reason, typically they'll have a physician assistant who can get through some of the appointments and then certainly at least get in there and you know start interacting with the patient before they're sitting in the room for half an hour. And it happens all over. My <laughs> my very close friend, those of you who've been listening for a while, the girl who I consider my third daughter, who's really just our neighbor from Kauai, her mom, flew from Kauai over to Oahu. She needs a knee replacement, and of course I'm not going to do it because she's basically close family. I don't ever op- operate on close family, and she wanted it to be done in Hawaii anyway. So she flew from Kauai over to Oahu to talk to an orthopedic surgeon, and she got up and left after she had been in the office for an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> so it just happens everywhere, and it's uh, it stinks that it happens like that, but there's just things, and especially right now, you know, I told you we have some issues with staffing. Well, last night, I had a couple of fractures come in, and... We were trying to get one of them transferred to Des Moines, and they said, "Well, that's just that goes on the wait list. We don't, and we can't tell you when that patient's going to get here." And so, and they said it could be a day or more. So, uh, and the reason for that is all the Des Moines hospitals are shut down because they don't have enough nurses. So they've shut floors down, and apparently there's tremendous ER waits, and so there's a lot of a lot of issues right now. So. Be a little patient with your with your doctor right now. Uh, there's, there's a lot going on in the background that make things difficult to provide care right now. Uh, but we're trying to do the best we can. So with that, just a little, little update on those type of things. And uh, I'll be back next week as we're one step closer into fully being in fall. And uh, you have a blessed week, Iowa.